got a copy of God's Word, go to Acts chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with chains and censures before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was, ha what was being done by the, by the angel was real, but thought that he was seeing a vision. Now when they passed the first, the, when they passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along on one, on one street. And immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who, whose other name was Mark where there were gathered together where they were gathered together and were praying and when he knocked on the door of the gateway a servant girl named Rhoda came and answered recognizing recognizing Peter's voice in her joy she didn't open the gate but ran in and, and reported that Peter was standing at the gate they said to her you are out of your mind but she kept insisting that it was so and they kept saying it is his angel but Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the, the censures and, and ordered that they would be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. Having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oratory to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God, not a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory. He did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of the Lord the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Well, the Associated Press wrote on January 7th, 1991, that at the age of 73, Alfred Hines died. He also went by the name Alfred Houdini because Alfred Hines, although not a great thief or burglar, was incredible at escaping from prison. He was from London's East End and he, at, in 1953, was sentenced to 12 years in prison for his crime of participating in the robbery of Maple's Furniture Store in London. 
1955, he escaped from Nottingham Prison by copying a key to the jail's workshop, which he memorized, the shape. He climbed the jail wall and got away in a truck provided by a friend. He was captured eight months later. In 1957, he escaped again. This time, he was at the law court in London. He asked to go to the restroom, and when they took the handcuffs off, he and a friend pushed the two guards into the toilet and padlocked the door. He was later arrested trying to fly to Ireland. Again in 1958, Hines escaped from prison, again making a copy of a key, this time to the bathhouse where he escaped through a skylight over a wall and into a waiting car. Well, finally, in 1964, Alfred Hines was released from prison. In that same year, he sued the police superintendent and won. He was awarded $3,100 in damages and legal costs. He later went on to build a real estate business. And one day he actually even lectured at the National Council of Civil Liberties, arguing that the national police force should be more intelligent. We're kind of amazed and, and, and find entertaining escape stories, right? We make TV shows and movies about great escapes. And this passage of Acts chapter 12 is, I mean, it's just right because it's so entertaining. I mean, you have this great escape. It's one of three great escapes in the book of Acts, prison escapes in the book of Acts. There was one in chapter 5. There's this in chapter 12 and later on with Paul and Silas in the jail in Philippi. And so you can get caught up in this, this idea of this great escape. There is also in this chapter, I am firmly convinced, great humor. Now, we could go into a long debate about whether or not God uses humor and likes humor. I just submit to you creation. And if you have not gone out and observed animals and spent time with them, you can come to our house. You can watch chickens try to jump and eat blueberries off of a bush. God likes humor. There is humor in this passage. With immense ease... Peter is let out of a prison. But then Peter the Apostle can't get into the church. Rhoda, this servant girl, is so excited that Peter's at the door, she forgets to open the door. And instead of going, oh, I should go back and open the door, she stands there and argues. <laughs> no, it's really Peter. I promise it's really Peter. Not that any of us would ever do anything like that. And a church, a church that we're told in verse 5 is earnestly praying is more convinced that Rhoda has lost her mind or that Peter's guardian angel is now making house calls than they are that Peter could actually be at the door. So if this were going to be made into a movie, it would be an action comedy. But none of that is the focal point of the passage. The focal point is in a prison escape. That's not why Luke records it, because he's like, my book is getting a little dull. Maybe I'll have a prison escape. That'll draw him back in. The point of the details of Peter and Rhoda and this church is, is not so we can just laugh at them and they provide some comic relief. The point of all of it is to highlight the fact that we have a great deliverer. Here's the main thing, the main idea that I want you to see this morning, and we're going to keep coming back to it, and we'll develop it as we walk through this text. The great deliverer remains good and faithful in the face of persecution, using his power to spread the gospel. The great deliverer remains good and faithful in the face of persecution, using his power to spread the gospel. Now the first part of that, that we have this great deliverer, will take up most of our time and, and, and it takes up most of this, this narrative that we look at this morning. There is nothing and no one who can stand in the way of God, the great deliverer. 
nothing and no one. The, the, the central verse, if you had to pick one out in this passage, is Peter's commentary that he gives in verse 11. When Peter finally realizes he's not having a dream, this isn't a vision, he says in verse 11, and Luke records this for us in verse 11, so that we know this is the main point. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. It's that same message that Peter, after finally getting into the church, uh, after he gets in and he quiets people down, that's the message he wants taken to James, the half-brother of Jesus, and the rest of the leaders at the church there in Jerusalem. He wants them to know God has delivered him. All of the other details that we get about this are to point to how spectacular this deliverance is. So let's consider that. Let's just consider the physical situation that Peter found himself in first. We are told that Peter is imprisoned and that he is placed in prison with four sets of guards and there were four guards in each set. Now they weren't all watching him at the same time. Most commentators think that what is intended here is to say that there was one set of guards for each watch of the night. And so every three hours they were rotating out. That way they were fresh. No one's going to fall asleep or anything like that. And the setup was likely that Peter is chained to two guards inside of the prison. One on his right hand, one on his left hand. And then there were two guards outside of the prison to make sure, again, that, that he doesn't get out. Now remember, Peter's had a prison escape already. Maybe Herod has that in mind. We're really going to watch this guy. We're going to make sure. Now we hear that, and this is a Bible story, so we're comfortable with that, but I just want you to imagine you're in that situation. If you're in that situation, you are shackled, hands and feet. Do you think you can break free? I know, some of the guys in here are like, oh, I can do that figure it out. You haven't seen me flex. Right? I mean, let's be honest. You're shackled hands and feet. You're going to get free? Let, let's, let's up the ante. You're shackled to two guards. One on your right hand, one on your left hand. You, you, now you got to not only break the chains or get loose from the shackles, but now you have to at the same time take on two guards. I know some of you, you're still thinking, I'm, I, I, I like my chances. But now there are two guards outside of the prison. Because, hey, let's just face it. Uh, let's say you've watched all of your action movies. You're ready to go. You've watched all your YouTube videos on Kung Fu. And you think, I've got this. I can do this. And you get out of the shackles. You wrestle these two guards. Knock them out. Guess what? Congratulations. You are still in a jail cell. And outside of that jail cell, while you've been doing all of your kung fu motions to knock everybody out and get loose from these chains, are two guards who are waiting for you because they've heard all that's going on. So now what are you going to do? This is an absolutely impossible situation. There is zero reason to look at these circumstances and go, I can get out of this. This is no big deal. No, this is a big deal. It's a really big deal, and it's even more ominous because in verse 2 we're told that Herod has already killed James. James, one of the sons of thunder. James, a fellow apostle. James, one that was in the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. And there was no repercussion for it. So, so here Peter sits in this physical situation where he is shackled, he is chained to guards, he is in a prison, and he has guards outside of that prison watching him. There is no reason to believe that he could be delivered from that. And then what do we do? What, is, what does Luke give us these details? Why does he give them to us? Because an angel of the Lord shows up and all of these things that for all of us and for any normal person would be virtually impossible to overcome, what happens? It's nothing. I mean, it's absolutely nothing. 
it's almost anticlimactic because you're, you want the big fight scene. You want some explosion. You want some MacGyver type of, uh, of escape plan. Some of you are going, who in the world's MacGyver? But you want something like that. The angel just shows up. He just shows up in there. He's all bright and shiny. He hits Peter. Hey, Peter, wake up. We're leaving. He spends more time telling Peter what to do than he does anyone else. Peter, put your belt on. That's probably what get dressed means. Peter, put your belt on. Peter, put your sandals on. Peter, put your coat on. Peter, okay, follow me, Peter. And then, and then the chains, we're told, just fall off. The prison guards, we don't know whether they were sleeping. We don't know whether they're in some kind of trance. They do nothing. They just walk out and even when they get to the main gate of the city, it just opens. It just opens. And what was an impossible situation, insurmountable odds for Peter, and not just for Peter, but also for the early church, Right? I mean, they weren't huddled together plotting an escape plan. Right? They weren't figuring out how many swords and bows and arrows they had so that they could try and break Peter out. It wasn't a possibility. And it wouldn't have solved anything. There was no way Peter was getting out of this situation apart from a great deliverer showing up and getting him out. And what was absolutely impossible for Peter and impossible for the early church, God does, and He does it in such a way that even Peter, as he's experiencing it, thinks he's just having a vision. Right? This can't be reality. It can't be this easy. And it's not until the angel disappears that Peter goes, oh, wow, here I am standing in the street. And recognizes that this is what's really happened. Now, we could take it even a step further because it's not just the physical situation that Peter finds himself in. It's also the person who has put Peter in prison. Up to this point, we've seen persecution against the church, but the persecution has come from Jewish religious leaders. It's come from the Jews. Now the persecution is coming from Rome. That's who Herod symbolizes. This Herod that Luke introduces in verse 1 as Herod the king is Agrippa I. He's the grandson of Herod the Great. And he has, we know from history, he has a good relationship with the Jews. For some reason, we're not told why, he decides to lay violent hands on some belonging to the church. Now Luke wants us to see something here and he bookends this chapter with this image of Herod having this authority, being royal, being king. In fact, historians say that, that, that Agrippa didn't refer to himself as Herod, the king, but Luke wants us to see him in this, this royal type of way. He has this great authority. So right at the beginning of this chapter, he's called king, and his hands are mighty enough that he can grab hold of whoever he wants, including someone like James, and have him killed by the sword. Now, we should assume that James did nothing to justify his own death, that, that this was just because Herod decided he wanted to put James to death, and so he had the authority and the power given to him by Rome to do it. And who was going to complain? Who is going to stand against him? A ragtag bunch of Jews who believed in a Messiah who came and who Rome had also hung on a cross? I mean, I mean are, are they going to cause Herod problems? Are they going to cause Agrippa problems? Of course not. And so Luke tells us that, that Herod, motivated by political gain, the Jews liked, they were pleased with the death of James. So what does he do? He arrests Peter. Throws Peter in prison. And all the indicators are that Herod's intention after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was that celebration of their exodus, uh, the, the God's deliverance from Egypt, that he's going to bring Peter out of prison and there's going to be this time probably a very public execution of Peter. He's going to be put on trial perhaps, but it more than likely would be a mock trial and he would be killed. 
He has immense power. What's Peter going to do to stand against, against Herod, Agrippa I? Because again, Herod is, is an instrument. He, he's been given this power and authority by Rome. So in a way, you're not just asking about Herod, Agrippa, you're, you're asking about this great Roman Empire, the greatest power in the world at that time. How in the world is Peter and this, this little church, how are they going to stand against that? Well, you notice that at the end of chapter 12, there's also this other really kind of interesting story, right? We're told that Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Now, these towns were significant towns. Herod is angry with them, and who has to give? Is it Herod who gives? <laughs> no. No. It is Tyre and Sidon who have to give. They persuade Blastus, who Luke tells us is the king's chamberlain, so you can think like chief of staff or chief of security. They have to make peace with Herod. Why? Because they're dependent upon the food that comes from his country. So they have to give in. What are we supposed to see? We're supposed to see again the authority and the power that Herod has. There's this conflict. We don't know what the conflict was, but it was serious enough that, that there's this rift between Herod Agrippa and Tyre and Sidon, and these two towns say, hey, we, we give. We'll do whatever to have peace with you because you control our food supply, so we give in. Again, we're supposed to see how important, how powerful Herod is. And so what does Luke tell us? That on this appointed day, verse 21, Herod does what? He puts on his royal robes. Josephus records this event and he says that the robes were, were silver or silver lined and so they, they, they shone in the sun. So he puts on these robes and he sits on the throne and he delivers an oratory to them. And what happens? Well, the people begin to shout, that this is not the voice of a man, but a voice of a God. Now just picture this scene. Think about the immense amount of influence that Luke is telling us Agrippa has. He's got these royal robes on that are glistening in the sun. He's sitting on a throne. And the people around, whether they really believe it or not, are all shouting to him that his voice is not the voice of a man, but it's that of a God. What's tiny little Peter going to do against a man with that kind of power? I mean, put yourself in this situation. Imagine for some reason, a senator in our government decides they really don't like you. And they're going to use all of their influence, all of their connections to try and ruin your life. What are you going to do? Now imagine that not only is it a senator, but it's a senator whose, whose popularity is through the roof. When he or she shows up to town, people just, they clamor and scream and shout that this is the greatest senator that they've ever had and they're amazing. And Well, what are you going to do? Do you see the despairing situation that Peter is in? Do you see the despairing situation of this church in Jerusalem? Now as the Roman Empire begins to flex its muscle against this, this tiny church, what, what's going to happen? What could they do against such insurmountable odds? We have to feel the weight of that to understand the deliverance that comes, right? We have to feel the weight of that so that as people are shouting out that this is the voice of a God and not a man, then verse 23, when Luke uses this word immediately, we will recognize that this is the sign, this is the hand of the great deliverer who shows up and does what? An angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And in a very, I don't know, Solomon, Ecclesiastes type, type of way, 
He goes from sitting on a royal throne, wearing royal robes, to being eaten by worms. Which is to say, he joined the rest of the people who are dead. Josephus tells us he was struck by a disease and died in five days. Something that was impossible for Peter to accomplish. Something that was impossible for the church to accomplish. But something that was easy for the Lord to do. He is the great deliverer. And no one and nothing stands in His way. We are incredibly limited people and at times in our limitations, as we face the circumstances of our lives, we can think that things that seem incredibly difficult to us must also be incredibly difficult to God. We think that when we look at the trials that we face and the hardships that we face and the obstacles that we face, that when we look at a mountain and say, God, there's a mountain, He sees a mountain. He sees an obstacle that's just as hard for Him or is is just as confusing for Him. Now listen, God sympathizes with us in our hardships. Christ put on flesh and He dwelt here on earth with us. He understands what it's like to be human. He understands how confusing and difficult circumstances may be. But we don't want to forget that at the same time, He is God. And that when we're confused and perplexed, when we have obstacles that seem insurmountable, God's not up in heaven as we pray and ask for His help going, jeez, ah... I'm not sure. That's a really good question. You know, that's a hard one you got there. So you're in prison, right? Okay, okay. Is there a back door somewhere? Uh, did somebody leave a key in your pocket? Do you know any mercenaries by chance? He's not confused. He's not wondering, how, 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 what could I do to make something happen? He is the limitless God. He is the great deliverer nothing and no one stands in His way. When God chooses to act, prison chains fall off. When God chooses to act, guards are rendered useless. When God chooses to act, prisons open without a word. When God chooses to act, wicked people in powerful positions drop dead and are eaten by worms because nothing and no one stands in God's way. He is the great deliverer. This week I read about a a new social media app and you should laugh at the the fact that I'm telling you that because I am not into social media at all. And, and my understanding is the app is called Be Real and the whole idea is you're going to be authentic and so it sends you this notification once a day and when you get that notification, you've got two minutes to snap a sh- two pictures, one of what's in front of you and then one of yourself and what's behind you and the whole idea is it's going to be authentic because people are going to see, you can't put any filters on things and all that. You're, people are going to see what your life is really like. Now, it's picking on social media is always easy to do, right? It's low-hanging fruit, right? It's, it's, it's like complaining about bad drivers. We're all ready to complain about them, and we are convinced we are never one ourselves. The reason I bring that up is not to shame any of you who might have that on, on your phone right now. If you get the notification, please don't take a picture of me. Um, but... The reason I bring that up is because I think long before that app showed up, this is how you and I can end up assessing our lives. We take a snapshot of what's right in front of us. We take a snapshot of what's right around us. And we assume that that tells us the story of our lives. We assume that that informs us about what is reality, about what's authentic. What would Peter's perspective have been if he took a snapshot while he's sitting there in that cell? What would the early church's perspective have been had they taken a snapshot of the fact that James, one of the apostles, has been beheaded is more than likely what's happened. And that Peter is now in prison. What would their perspective be? 
as real as that snapshot might be of the things that are right in front of me and the things that are behind me, listen to me, brothers and sisters in Christ, as real as those things are is our great Deliverer who is ruling and reigning and no one and nothing stands in His way. And so He's given us this Word. And all throughout, He recounts time and time again how His great hand of deliverance has shown up. And He says to us, never take a snapshot of your life without remembering your great deliverer. In our passage in particular, we keep this in mind as we consider persecution. You and I look, and, and, and we look, for instance, at a place like North Korea and a communist government of North Korea. Which one of us could bring that toppling to the ground? We look at uh, Islamic regimes. We look at what's going on in Afghanistan. Who can solve that problem? Well, I can't. But just because you can't and I can't, just because all of the politicians of Europe and all throughout North America might put their heads together and they can't figure out a way to do it, may we never think that God looks at it and goes, geez, I don't know what I'm doing with North Korea. Geez, I'm not sure what to do about Afghanistan. You see, this is one of the reasons that we at times fail to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ. Because we believe that God is as perplexed and limited as we are. But we go to the great Deliverer. Who at any moment, He is able and can deliver. And it's not hard for Him. He can do it. And so we cry out because we have access to Him. And we plead, oh God, deliver once again. God is the great Deliverer and no one and nothing stands in His way. God the great Deliverer remains good and faithful in the face of persecution using His power to spread the Gospel. Let's look at that next facet of it, that He is good and faithful. There's a lot in this text we won't have time to get to this morning, but, but here's something that Luke is bringing to us. We've talked about the fact that suffering and persecution is a thread, a major theme that runs through the book of Acts. And so we are faced here with this reality of what's going on. So Luke gives us this end of chapter 11. What do we have? We have the church in Antioch growing, right? It's established. Now the church is in this, this prominent city of Rome. Chapter 13, what's going to happen? That church is going to send Paul and Barnabas out with John Mark and, and the Gospel is going to begin to permeate the Roman Empire. And, and you know the book of Acts. You know what's coming. You know there's going to be persecution. You know that there's going to be opposition. It's coming. We have already seen in the book of Acts moments when God has delivered, like Acts chapter 5, when, when He delivered Peter before along with the other apostles. And we've seen moments when He has not as it were, delivered, and Stephen is stoned to death. And now right here, we're faced in one section, in one short story, and ask ourselves, if we'll, be, if we'll just wrestle with the text, we have to ask ourselves, there's this great deliverer in verses 6-11, through who with, with, in an effortless way, gets Peter out of prison. Where was that God in verse 2. Do you follow what I'm saying? Where was he when James is arrested? Where was he when James was beheaded? If God is able to do what He does in verses 6-11, through if He's able to do what He does at the end of this chapter and take Herod out effortlessly, where was he in verse 2? Here's the reality. The, the, the reality is, as we move through the book of Acts, we're going to see this. Sometime Paul's going to be delivered. We've already seen that, right? He, after his conversion, he's there in, in Damascus and, and he gets word. They're, they're out to get him and he escapes. Same thing in Jerusalem. 
Is he always going to escape? Nope. His body is going to bear the marks of the times that he didn't escape. So what is God doing? Oh, brothers and sisters, this is the challenge that we find ourselves facing. This is the path of faith and the tension that we are caused to walk down. Because on one side, we could just decide, well, God's not strong enough. He's up in heaven and He's loving and He's compassionate and He's kind, but He's not able. Right? He's like that, that supportive friend. They'll always give you a hug. They'll give you a tissue when you need it and you're crying and all of that. But they really don't have any ability to actually help or do anything because they're broke and still live with their parents. And you love their support, but they can't really do anything for you. And, and so if we fall off of that side, we don't pray and, and we, don't, we don't persist in faith because we go, well, God can't do anything. But if we believe that He can, if we accept what Luke writes here as historical fact that God can deliver and He can do it effortlessly, then it forces us to the other side to go, but then, God, are You good? Are You faithful then? Why did you deliver Peter and not James? Why did, why did you deliver Peter before and not Stephen? What are you doing? How is your church supposed to respond to persecution as the Gospel spreads? What are we to do if we don't know how you're going to respond? Well, I cannot answer all of those questions this morning, but we need to remember this. Christ's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. And in a very real way, church, James got the better deliverance. In a very real way, James got the better deliverance. Because James had witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. James had sat with a risen Savior. And James knew that he was living only to live again. So when James' head is chopped off in this life, he got to see Jesus again. And he awaited a resurrected body. Maybe there were days Peter having received in this sense the lesser deliverance to suffer more in this life, there may have been days when in fact Peter thought to himself, Lord, really? Could I not have died? Couldn't James have done a better job at this? This is the upside down mindset that we read from the Apostle Paul when he writes to the church at Philippi. Right? You're familiar with the verse. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. For me to live is what? It's Christ. Why was Peter delivered? Because the Lord had more for him to do. That's why he was delivered. The Lord had more for him to do, more to suffer in this life. You don't believe me, just read what he wrote later on in First and Second Peter. The days weren't easy. It wasn't all rainbows from here on out. Now he had more for Peter to endure, more for him to suffer, more work for him to do. For me to live is Christ, but for me to die, to be separated from everything in this world, to be taken away from my family and my friends and all of my stuff that I've accumulated, for me to die because Christ Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, for me to die is gain. It's gain. And so in the upside down kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, James got the greater deliverance in this story. Because James went to be with Jesus. And Peter was left to endure more. It seems as though Peter probably fled from Jerusalem and isn't back in Jerusalem until the Jerusalem council. There's this great point here that that leadership begins to shift in the church in Jerusalem that the apostles were not indispensable but now James the half brother of Jesus becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem and other elders begin to fill in the places where the apostles were were working and were at 
God is good and faithful as the great deliverer in what He chooses and what He ordains. He is good and faithful. Now here's the other part of that that clarifies for us how we can say that He's good and faithful. And it's so important and it's where this text drives and it's, I think, where Luke is driving at this whole time in this. We get at the end of chapter 12 two summary statements by Luke, which he has done throughout the book of Acts. Verse 25 seems simple enough. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem. And when they had completed, when they had completed their service, bringing John, whose other name was Mark. So that, I guess that's where us Southerners get it from. One name isn't enough. Give them multiple names, right? Type deal. We got John Mark here. That verse is to get us, get them back to Antioch, right? So they can be sent out. Now there is more of a kerfuffle around that verse than you would like to know about when that actually happened and how that lines up and why Luke wrote it here. And I won't go into all of that. The other verse is this brief summary and it changes everything. It is the driving force of everything. Because God, our great Deliverer, is faithful and good to spread the Gospel. Here's what Luke says, but in contrast to these things, here's what's happening. The Word of God increased and multiplied. So you take that verse and you run it back through the entire narrative. And here is what Luke is saying. James, one of the sons of thunder, one of the disciples of Jesus Christ, an apostle of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples, is beheaded. But the Word of God increased and multiplied. So it is not a loss. It is a gain. Peter is imprisoned and miraculously delivered. And if that's the end of it, we're not sure. Is that a loss or a gain? But the Word of God increased and multiplied. And so we say, yes, then that's a gain. Herod is struck down. And we go, I don't know, is somebody worse going to take his place? Who knows? Is this a loss or a gain? But the Word of God increased and multiplied. Therefore, it is a gain. You see, this is what the church is here to do. This is what Jesus looked at His disciples and told them. I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And I am sending you out to proclaim this good news. So as this good news goes out, here's what you can expect. If they persecuted me, Jesus told His disciples, they're going to persecute you. And it's going to be hard. And at times I'm going to show up and my great hand of deliverance is going to do things you cannot imagine. But at other times, you're going to die. You're going to suffer. You're going to be unjustly thrown in prison. You're going to be tortured. You're going to be marginalized. You're going to be abused. You're going to be oppressed. And if your view is just this life, if your view is just, does this Christian life make me feel better, feel safer, feel good, work out in the here and now, then you're going to miss it because here is the ultimate question. Is the Word of God spreading and multiplying? Because that Word is the only Word by which people can enter into this kingdom that Jesus had established and is coming back to fully set on this earth. So that if James dies and the word spreads, it's a gain. So that if the Apostle Paul will go out and suffer greatly and his body will be riddled with the scars of unjust persecution, but the word spreads, it is a gain. It is a gain. Is this the way we think? Is this the way you think? 
Is this the way that, that your life is oriented? Is this the way you think about your finances? Is this the way you think about your talents and abilities, your career, the networks in which God has placed you? Is this the way you think? If I don't get the promotion, but the Word of God spreads, it's a gain. If I keep having to try to make this beat up, junky car work, but more missionaries are going out, it's a gain. I just have to remind myself of that every time it breaks down. But okay, it's a gain. Right? If my kids don't grow up and have the cute little house with the white picket fence, if I don't end up with grandkids because my son, my daughter, goes to one of these places in the world where I can't even know what they're doing day to day, but they're in there in Afghanistan, in Somalia, laboring away for the sake of the Gospel. It is a gain. It's a gain. Church, this, this isn't just the experience of the book of Acts. Read church history. How much effort has gone into snuffing out the Word of God? How many powerful men and women have risen and used all of their might to try to destroy the advancement of the Word of God? And not a one has succeeded. Be it a philosopher, psychologist, politician, dictator, you name it, it has failed. Think just of our brothers and sisters in Christ in communist China. Think of all of the technology, all of the power, all of the money. We as a nation here in America are concerned about the power and influence of China. They have brought as much of that power and influence as they can down on Christians to try to snuff out the advancement of the Word of God. And guess what? Guess what? It continues to spread and multiply. Why? Why does it do that? Because we have a great deliverer who is good and faithful. And because we have brothers and sisters in Christ who understand this upside down kingdom in which they say, if I'm in prison and the gospel advances, that's gain. If I lose my job and the gospel advances, that's gain. What an encouragement to us. What an encouragement to this church. What an encouragement to Theophilus and the original recipients of this book from Luke to see that there is a great deliverer. and He is always faithful and good. And no matter who rises up, no matter what power may present itself, no matter who they are, be it Rome, be it a prison, be it guards, Nothing stands in the way of our great Deliverer. The Word of God will spread and increase. I hope that's our prayer. We consider our lives. And if you find yourself this morning and that's not been your prayer, listen, I get it. I, 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 I totally get it because this is not what our circumstances tell us day in and day out. It is so easy to get caught up in what's happening right around us to all of the alarms and buzzes and things happening around us. We forget. We lose sight. This is part of why God's gifted us with the church. The singing of the songs. The prayer together. The reading of Scripture. The preaching of the Word. The gathering together so that we can remind ourselves, call ourselves back, encourage one another. We need to just sit side by side with each other and remind one another that this is reality. That, that, that in fact it is gain if the Word of God increases and we decrease. Because the world's not going to tell us that. Our co-workers aren't going to tell us that. Our classmates aren't going to tell us that. We're going to tell us we're crazy. We need these things to remind us of this reality. Baraka, may the Word of God increase and multiply in our homes, in this community, and in the communities that you're a part of, 
And may we march out with boldness to proclaim it because we're not concerned about the consequences for us. If God wants to deliver, He will. He is good and faithful, but the Word of God must increase and multiply. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your might and Your power. Forgive us for the many ways that we unknowingly diminish you thinking that you're like us and limited oh we thank you that you are the great deliverer help us lord in the busyness of life and the trials that we face and the difficulties in front of us we forget we forget that one of the main reasons we are still here on this earth is so that the word of god may spread and multiply May we busy ourselves about that. It'll be for our good. And it'll be for your glory. And so we ask, Lord, not just later on, not next month. We ask this week, God, grant us opportunities. Give us the boldness when they show up and the compassion. Help us to see the people that you bring into our lives. Maybe it'll be just a, a passing individual, a cashier, someone at the gas station, I don't know, a customer that we work with, a student, a teacher, I don't know who it will be, but Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes that are looking. Give us an awareness. Help us to see, oh God, through the eyes of your kingdom. And those opportunities come, Father, may we seize them. May we lovingly and graciously declare there is a risen Lord Jesus Christ who is ruling and reigning. And we share unashamedly our undying hope of a coming King, of a resurrection, of a day when all that is wrong and evil in this world will be undone. And we'll give you all of the glory and praise for it. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.